The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, worship team, as we come. We're actually going to do a little bit of a change, and uh, Amy, we'll do the pastoral prayer after the sermon, because it actually makes more sense after the sermon. And so I want you to turn, if you have your Bible this morning, if you want to find it, if you don't have one, we'll be in the Pew Bibles today, uh, and we will be in the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, if you're visiting with us and haven't been through the study with us, Revelation chapter 3, and we are going to be talking about the last church in the series of seven real churches that we have been talking about. 
out. And these seven churches started uh, the study we did back in early June. And that just means summer's coming to a close because when we started this, summer had just begun. And that means we are pretty much close to back to school and all the rush of things that comes. And so as we do that, if you are able to this morning and emphasize on able to, would you join me in standing in honor of God's word? Uh, we know you had that delicious breakfast this morning, so we're trying to get your calories up and down a little bit <laughs> as you do. But more so to feast on God's word. And so let's do so as we read about the church at Laodicea or Laodicea, depending on which part of the country you're from and depending on how you say certain vowels and phrases. But you'll hear both out of my mouth today because we're in Missouri. We do a little bit of both, don't we? It's you you and y'all and you guys, as we often say. But here it is to the church at Laodicea, the last letter to a real church by Jesus himself some 2,000 years ago. John is the author, the the, the transcriber, if you will, reporter of of everything. Jesus is the one speaking. And here he writes this last word to them, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church at Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful true witness, the beginning of God's creations. Of course, speaking of Jesus. Verse 15, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot, but would that you would either be hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit, spew, or vomit you out of my mouth, depending on your translation. For you say, verse 17, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, but not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and the salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, verse 19, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. For behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him or sup with him, and he with me. And the one who conquers, verse 21, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Notice the comparison there. And he says that great phrase we've heard the last seven weeks. He who has a what church? Ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Your ears are working today, are they not? So thank you for that. This last church is a very straightforward church, the lukewarm church. And we'll look at it in two ways this morning. But will you join with me as we pray, as we conclude, wrap a bow around this section? We are kind of at the point of no return. After we get out of the churches into next week, we get into the what most people consider the real book of Revelation, where it all the details, and we'll get there. But don't miss what Jesus is saying to us today, right here, right now, through this church. May he give us wisdom. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. These last seven weeks have been a great study of what it is to know how you are to be pleased, how you are displeased with us. Father, not in the eternal sense, to be sure, but perhaps in our relational sense here, Father, with the day-to-day. But Father, also what you find praiseworthy and also what you condemn and you say, stay away from. Thank you for those warnings, those guardrails and the encouragements, Lord. In all these things, may we do as we've heard over and over. Let us hear what you're saying to us through your spirit. And Father, may we apply it to our hearts only because of the same spirit. Father, give us wisdom now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. May be seated. Now, this is one of those things, and I think Nelson has it loaded in the queue. This is one of those things. If you have a hearing aid, I'm going to warn you, if you have a hearing aid, we're going to play some sounds. So if you have a hearing aid, you might want to go like this, because what we are about to play is what's called the mosquito test, okay? If you can hear every sound that is going to come out of the speakers here in about 30 seconds, you are considered to be a good hearer despite your age. But if the statistics hold true, most of us, including myself, will probably only hear two of the three sounds. I'll get to that in a second. So it's going, to be, it's going to be like a hearing test with those sounds. So if that does not like you, put your hands in your ears now. You re- does that make sense? No one's making any motion, so I guess you're ready. Are you ready for this? Maestro Nelson, whenever you are ready. That's it. 
How many of y'all heard the first one? Second one, keep your hand up. Third one? Fourth one? Wow, some of you are much younger than your age may presume or something like that. That is called the Mosquito Test, and this was founded back in England in the late uh, 1990s and early 2000s, where people who were uh, young youths who were causing trouble around businesses in England, they started using these high-pitched noises that only young people are supposed to hear. You know what it was to do? It was to drive them away, to get them away from, from causing havoc, and that's why they do that test. Just make sure, because if you're older, you don't cause any trouble, right? So they, that's why they don't let that happen. But it is interesting that that, that that actually became a thing in about 20 years ago when cell phones were all the rage in schools and, and people didn't know what to do with them, that they started making mosquito tones, that, that last tone that only young people can hear. They would put that on phones so the teachers couldn't know when it buzzed or beeped that only the people who are young could understand what it is. Isn't that amazing? Quite a test. And just as our ability to detect the sounds of high frequencies deteriorate when we get older, can you imagine what it's like spiritually in the same vein? How sometimes we are so sensitive to the words of Jesus that we listen, but over time as we get deeper in sin or more lukewarm or more prideful or less humble, guess what our hearing spiritually does? Oh, I'm so old, I can't hear that anymore. I don't want to hear that anymore. And there it is. And it is humility and innocence of a child that makes it possible to hear the voice of God. But over the years, as we age physically and we mature spiritually, sometimes we don't want to hear the voice of God because we know that that will mean that we have to follow the voice of God. Do you remember this great passage from Matthew 18? Jesus said he called the little children to him and he placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you that unless you change and become like little children, You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, the church that we're going to study today had long since turned off their ears to the very things that God wanted them to do. To some degree, they could hear what Christ was saying to them, but they didn't want to hear it. They claimed ignorance. They claimed that they were okay. They claimed they were satisfied. We don't need any more of you, Jesus. We're okay. And that is one of the hardest groups to reach are those who are prideful outside and prideful on the inside. You know Proverbs 16, 18, pride goeth before a fall or destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Everyone who exalts himself, Jesus said, will be humbled. Isaiah 2, 7, the haughtiness or pridefulness of man shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Laodicea, or Laodicea, however you want to say it, struggled with lukewarmness, but it really was a spiritual pride. It was a spiritual inability to say, I want to take what God says and live it out. And they were okay. And from pride comes lukewarmness because we get content in our sin. We don't want to hear the things that God is saying. And this is why Spurgeon said, I don't think the devil cares about how many churches or Christians you have. If only you have lukewarm preachers and Christians and people in them. The point of it is, is that will we live in a hiding place, avoiding the things that God is showing us? Or will we listen, even when it's hard, to the very things that he tells us to? Is our spiritual antenna, our spiritual ears, heightened to a degree that no matter what he says to us, we're willing to listen and obey? Or do we turn them down and claim excuses along the way? Excuse me, the big idea today is that true saving faith always leads to a humble, passionate commitment to God, his name, his fame, his people, and his mission. When you know Christ, you will do anything for Christ because Christ has done everything for you. It is finished, it is done, and he gave that to us. But before we get there, before we get to that church, I want to review where we have been. And if you have your Bible with you, I want to go back to chapter 2. If you'll just follow along. I want to remind you about the churches and how they struggled. I want to remind you about these seven churches, this great map that you've seen the last several weeks. And we know that the church at Ephesus in, Ephesians, uh, in, in Revelation 2 was a church that you might call today the stereotypical independent fundamentalist Baptist King James only version church. That is, they were orthodox, they were moral, they were hardworking, but they weren't concerned about the lost and they weren't concerned about each other. They were doctrinally sound, but they were navel gazers, and to Jesus said to them, love. The second church that we saw was the church at Smyrna, number two up there. 
they were what you might call the persecuted missionary 1040 window church that our missionaries try and reach around the world. They were afflicted, impoverished, and slandered. They were spiritually rich, but they were vibrant, and they were fearful. And to them, Jesus said, be faithful. Pergamum was number three on the list up there. This was your ungrounded, youth-infused, youth-pastor-led church of the day. They were faithful, they were passionate, but they compromised with the world to reach the world through sexual immorality and idolatrous culture. They were missional, but they were misguided. And to them, Jesus said, discern. There was also number four, Thyatira. This was your mainline liberal Methodist Church of Christ, big name church, PC, uh, USA church that we will call today. They were warm-hearted and liberal. They were strong in compassion, service, and perseverance, but they undervalued the very doctrine that Jesus died for and the fidelity that it took to stay there. They were loving, but they were over-tolerant. And to them, Jesus said, think. Number five, Sardis was your flashy and successful but ultimately shallow megachurch of today's world. They were like your Bible Belt church that were chocked full of nominal Christians who punched in and punched out and lived like Satan the rest of the week. They had a great reputation, but in reality, they were whitewashed tombs because they were spiritually dead. And to them, Jesus said, wake up. And last week, Philadelphia, little Philadelphia, if you've ever walked in the inner city before, and you see a little church on a storefront or a little church that just kind of stands out there. That's kind of Philadelphia, number six. They felt weak and unimpressive, but they kept God's word and they had not denied his name. They struggled in a lot of ways with the culture around them, but they were a strong church. And to them, Jesus said, press on. But in today's church, Laodicea, Laodicea, they were the ritzy, influential church out of the leafy part of town. They were the suburban church. Can I, can I, I'm really broad brushing today. I get that. Poke at it later. They thought they had it all together. They were spiritually poor, but they were materially rich. The church was filled with affluence and apathy. And to them and today as we study, Jesus says, be earnest. Keep watch over your very souls. So this morning, I want you to see two responses of the risen Jesus to this church at Laodicea. We're going to see Christ disgust and Christ remedy. Christ disgust and Christ remedy. First, look at number one, Christ disgust. First, I want you to see Laodicea number eight or number seven here was about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia, number six. And in being in that area, they were famous for their hot springs. And this is where Jesus is playing on the imagery. They were also famous for their medicine. They had a salve or a little ointment that could be put on the eyes and 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 my father-in-law is an optometrist, and this was the area where in that day they, they did optometry. And so they, were, so they were known for their curing of eye diseases. They were also known for their black wool, the black wool that was used in famous uh, people's clothing, the Hollywood stars of their day, the rich and the famous. But mostly they were just a famous city. And in being a famous city, they had bankers, finance people, idols, uh, idol makers, and all sorts of things. They were so rich, in fact, that in AD 60, when the, when the whole area was leveled by an earthquake, they rebuilt the whole city in one calendar year, funding it all by themselves. Can you imagine if Kansas City got rocked, how much e-tax would be taken out of your check if you worked in Kansas City? And if you know Kansas City, that's a real truth and joke at the same time. They said, we can handle it ourselves. Their strength was that they were self-sufficient, they were independent, but they didn't seek anyone's help. The weakness was is that they became so inflicted with self that Christ could not be seen through anything they did. And the problem began around about 80, 90. This is a new church. This was the new church plant. This was the new uh, money that all the, uh, the, the people were pouring into to start a church. It probably was started just a few years before John wrote this letter. And yet here they are, so content with their formal, nominal Christianity that Jesus has zero praise for them. Zero. Last week, he had nothing but praise for Philadelphia. And compared to other letters, Jesus is being the sternest and st strongest here, lacking nothing, holding nothing back. But oh, notice how he opens up before he gets to his disgust. Natalie, can you bring my water up, please? I think too much time in the sun the last week is catching up to me. But notice how he identifies himself in verse 14. Thank you. He identifies himself as the amen. Before he gets to what he has to say about them, he's going to remind them about who he is. 
excuse me, and he says he is the amen. And this is Jesus speaking to himself. He says, these are the words of the amen. Now, we say this all the time, and my British brothers, they'll often say all men. And if you're around a young kid about that time, my best friend Brian Peters is a Presbyterian, and he'll tell you if you're in England, all the people will say all men. And his little daughter will say, well, what about all the women? And that sort of thing. And that's not quite what he's saying here. He's saying amen, amen, or all men. It's a, it's a term of truthfulness. You're saying, we agree with those words. We agree you're truthful. And in fact, that's how he introduces himself, Jesus does. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. Look at verse 14. He says that his word is always true. It's without error or hypocrisy. He's a faithful witness. Everything he's going to tell this church is founded in truth. They're not just zingers to get them upset. And he's going to tell them a message that's difficult or painful, but hold on, it's the truth. But you notice that strange title at the end, verse 14, his disgust before he gets there. It's the beginning of the creation of God. The Greek word for word means ruler of creation. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and, in the, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1.1, 1, 1, Jehovah's Witnesses hate that verse. He existed before all else. And before he gets to tell them the bad truth, he needs to remind them about who he is. And church, before we can hear what God has to say to us, we need to be reminded about who he is. And so he starts the rebuke in verse 15. He says, I know your works. If you've been with us the last several weeks, you know that that is what he said to many of the churches. He says, I know your works. And what about the works? Behold, I've set them... Before you, you are neither cold nor hot. And Jesus refers to the boiling hot and freezing cold. Lukewarm is in the middle. You don't like to order your food cold, do you? You especially don't like it lukewarm. You want it hot and ready when it's ready to be served. And what Jesus is telling them, and his disgust begins with, is that this type of Christianity lacks a wholehearted commitment. You give lip service to me on Sunday, Lady Asia, but you do not live throughout the week for me. You don't care about me throughout the week. It's the same and far from Philippians when Paul said, I count all things for loss of knowing him and him and the power of his resurrection. Paul had a single focus. It's Christ and him risen from the grave. A lot of you see Christians were wholehearted to whatever they thought was best for them. But there aren't churches like that today, surely, are there? There aren't Christians like that today, surely, are there? Oh, yes, there are. Many churches today lack a zeal for Christ. They get passionate about their programs and their pastors and their witness in the community, their reputation, but the reputation of Christ has long been lost. They're lukewarm. And some view this as fanaticism, but Christ says, you don't love me because you don't love my word. And because you don't love my word, you don't love me, the word, the one who came. So he gives three reasons here why he hates lukewarmness. Three reasons and the first one is this, Jesus hates, and I use that word intentionally, number one, Jesus hates all self-complacency and half-hearted religion or self-contentment. It's like when you warm up your coffee, I am not a coffee drinker, bless you all who drink bitter water, but uh, they had a, there's a Hebrew word for that, it's called meribah, but uh, that's another topic for another time. But when you warm up your coffee, you don't like to have it cold, do you? You don't like to have it lukewarm. You like it hot. Now, some of you, you can like keep a pot in your pot for three days and pop it in the microwave and you're as happy as a lark. God bless you, sir, man, but that's not me. But for this church, they were self-content. Jesus says to them, you're trying to have me and my riches and have your hand in the pie of the world as well. And you can't do that. He hates that. How easy it is for a church or a Christian, a pastor today, to lose their zeal for God, to lose their passion for his scripture, to stop drinking in truth, to stop hating sin, living for Christ, to not see Jesus as the beautiful Savior. How easily we can slip into that mode. Remember what Jesus said in John 15? He said, without me, you can do what? Nothing. And this church decided they could do everything with themselves. They were impacted by the spirit of the world. They liked being a little bit religious and a little bit worldly because for them, that was the perfect mix. 
But Jesus says, I hate your attitude. I'm grieved by it. In fact, I'm disgusted by it. Jesus said a few verses later, I will spew you out of my mouth. I'm sorry if that makes a weird image in your head, but I'll sp- it's like you went to Worlds of Fun on the Tilt-A-Whirl a few too many times, and you, yeah, you get the picture. In many ways, they're like the Pharisees. Jesus couldn't stand the Pharisees. They would tell people to go here, and they wouldn't walk an inch there. They'd say, do this, and they'd walk back that way. How easy it is. Can I give a warning to all of us, most of us in this room? If you grew up in a religious home, children, grandchildren, even old people, how our hearts can pretend, even after receiving grace, that we are okay. Be very careful this morning not asking if you're a perfect or even a mature Christian, but I'm asking you, have you lost your passion for Jesus Christ this morning? Are you as passionate for him now as you were back whenever that time was you can remember being passionate? Is he really your number one? Are you dedicated to Christ, his church, and his people, spreading his name? Or is religion just something you do on a Sunday because that's what good people do on a Sunday? He hates lukewarmness because it's half-hearted and it's self-content. Second reason he hates lukewarmness is because it is the greatest insult that you can pay him. It is the greatest insult, perhaps, that you can pay him. I mean, imagine a wife for a second whose husband's birthday is coming up, and he, he, he gets a, a, a meal from his wife, and she goes to the store, or maybe she goes on her app and does Walmart pickup, I don't know, whatever you do these days, and they, she goes home, cooks up a storm, by the time he gets home, it's the most beautiful meal. He's already had his favorite meal. There's scented candles. The kids are away. It's going to be a special evening. And the man walks in, because, men, you'd never do this, right? He walks in. He eats his meal. He treats it like scrambled eggs. He just goes down with it, walks into the living room, grabs the TV remote, turns on the thing, puts his feet up, and falls asleep. <laughs> you would be insulted, wouldn't you, ladies? Guys, you better be insulted at that guy yourself. This person just made a meal for three or four hours of work, and that's how you treat that person. How do you think Christ feels when he came from heaven to save us, to come and die and suffer for us, to agonize, to take the wrath of God, become an object of shame, hung naked on a cross, poured out the lifeblood for himself, for our sin. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet... As he says to this church, you come every Sunday, you hear the gospel, you shrug it off, you take him for granted, you take everything for granted, and you take his blood for granted. What an insult to be that lukewarm savior. The greatest threat to us is not that we don't, the greatest threat to us is not that we don't take Jesus seriously. The greatest threat to us is that we take Jesus seriously without realizing we're not taking him seriously. How could we ever be lukewarm with such a gospel? The greatest insult we can pay is when we say we love Jesus and we backtrack it by how we live and what we do with our lives and what our church does with its life. So he hates it. It's self-content. It's it's half-hearted. It ruins his reputation. But another reason he hates it, and these are following in verses 17 and 18, he hates it because it affects the reputation of Christ. If you go back to your text, it affects the reputation of Christ. For you say, verse 17, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. And not realizing that, you've become wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, what they've done is they've taken that lovely message of Jesus and they've twisted it up with their own reputation. It's guilt by association. Christ is telling them that because of how you've acted, because of the lukewarmness you have towards me, I may have to withdraw my name from you to protect my reputation. Say, what does that mean? Do you remember back in the Old Testament how many times God would send forth, especially to Moses, Moses, I'm going to destroy this people because they're not acting like my people. And Moses would intercede and God would abate for a minute or stop for a minute. Or do you remember, especially in Jeremiah, when when God is sending forth the people out from Israel to Babylon, he did it for his name's sake. But there would be people, he would say, that would say, these people... They didn't treat their God right, so God took them out. Friends, God's reputation is very serious. And sometimes we try and reason our lukewarmness as a struggle between the old nature and the new nature. But really, sometimes we're just making excuses for what we don't want to acknowledge. 
And that is we are really happy with where we are and we don't want to be where Christ is. And that's a sad commentary. Perhaps you've heard of the well-known story of a guy in the United Kingdom in the 16th century called Charlie Peace, P-E-A-C-E, Peace. He was on his way to the gallows, and rightfully so. He had stolen. He had he'd just been a rebel rouser. And he overheard an uh, Anglican priest reading out of the common book of prayer. And he heard the prayer about eternity and, and heaven and hell. And this is what Charlie Peace supposedly said as he's getting ready to be hung to the priest in front of a whole bunch of people. He said, quote, Priest, if I believe what you and the church of God say you believe, even if all England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it if need be on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell you never told me about. If hell is like that, the greatest stumbling block we can put in front of unbelievers is to not be like that Anglican priest supposedly was to be so lukewarm that we don't even tell people about the very bowels of hell because we're just content with our temperature spiritually right where we are. There comes a point where Christ can't associate with us that he's going to say to us, I will spew you out of my mouth. I'll spit you out of my mouth. And that phrase there implies immediate action. He's tired. He's disgusted. And there seems to be a dichotomy within Christ and Laodicea. One side, he can't stand their lukewarmness. And on the other side, he's going to reject them but he's given them opportunity to repent. You say, well, Darren, is he, is he gonna, are they going to lose their salvation? No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about their witness and reputation within the world itself. There can be some extremes here. There are some churches that are so worried about their image that even to copy and paste their image on a Facebook post can get you a, a cease and desist lawsuit order. Are we about our image here? Or Christ's image. There are some churches that don't care anything about the image of Christ, and they'll just go and live for Christ. And even though they bring shame at points on the name of Christ, they still don't do anything. Friends, may we be aware that everything we do points back to Jesus Christ. Father, mother, parents, we have a great responsibility to our kids because they're always what? He who has an ear, let him have kids and know that they hear everything, right? They're always watching. You are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. This world is not your home. But may we live it in such a way we are not lukewarm for our spirituality. We'll break that out in a minute, what that actually means. But I want you to know, Jesus hates lukewarmness. But I want you to see, that's number one. So what does he give as the reason, the remedy for this? Well, that's number two. That's the disgust that he has. But praise God, he didn't just leave them there. He didn't leave us there. Here is a remedy to this. Look down to verse 19. He says... Uh, excuse me, verse 18. I counsel you, Jesus says. So that's the, the change in the movement of the text. He's transitioning out. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may be rich and white garments so you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness, of course, that's referring back to verse 17, may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Here's at least three remedies that Christ gives. The first one is this. The first remedy to lukewarmness in a church's life, in a Christian's life, is by of Christ. By of Christ. Now, don't look at this and think of it any other different. He's not saying here that you can buy salvation. You can, you can earn salvation. That's not what Christ is saying. Lady see, it was a city of buying and selling. It's almost like Jesus is saying, look, I'm coming to your marketplace, and I want you to buy from me what I'm offering to you. And he's saying what Isaiah 55 says. It says, Behold, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come buy of me. What he's telling them is, exchange your artificial spiritual life for super spiritual life that's only found in me. Transfer your churchianity, your fake Christianity, your put on your face. Hey, how you doing today, brother? I'm doing great. Why are you here today? Oh, I'm here to praise God. Exchange the superficialness. For his real riches. What he's asking them to do is exchange their self-righteousness for his righteousness or his holiness, to put it another way. Jesus offers himself as a great exchange. Isn't that the good news? They were miserable, poor, blind, and naked, but he'll take their poverty, he'll take their blindness, he'll take their nakedness, and grant them real riches. 
How's he planning to do that? Well, let's look at this backwards. Into verse 18. He's going to take the salve, that's, that, that anointing on the, or the oil, and anoint their eyes so they may see. That word salve there is symbolic of regeneration. It's symbolic of you coming to Christ. Remember the blind man in John 9? What did he say? They asked him all sorts of questions. How can you see now? Do you remember what he said? I don't know. The one thing I know is this. I was blind, but now I see. And so he says, buy of Christ. Come to Christ. He's beginning a new work in you, church. Be quickened from the dead. Be regenerated. Be born again. And then he says in verse 18, buy for yourselves white garments so you can clothe yourself. What's he saying there? White raiment is a symbol of your justification. It's like he says, buy of me. Come without money. Come without price. I will re regenerate you, make you a Christian, and justify you, and set you apart. So when I look at you, I don't see a sinner, but I see my son who stood in your place. And then he says, gold refined by fire. It's a symbol of your sanctification, that big word that God is making you more like him. First Peter says, the trial of faith is more precious than gold. Christ is the gold within. He's the gold around. He's the gold without. And he's the gold roundabout. And if you want to know him and grow in him, you must come to him. If you want to be saved, you must come to him. If you want to be justified, you must come to him. How do you fight lukewarmness? The very first thing is make sure you really know Jesus Christ. How many people sit in our pews, pews, we used to have pews, chairs, places that do not know Jesus, that if they died today would be trusting in some decision they made when they were a kid or they raised their hand, signed the back of a card, an evangelist declared him to be saved, or a pastor, sincerely as he tried, told them they're saved because they did this, that, or the other. The very first thing he says is, make sure you really know me. If you don't know me, then everything else I'm about to tell you makes absolutely no sense. Second remedy he gives here, verse 20, down to verse 20, is he says, respond to Christ. Not only buy of Christ, but respond to Christ. We'll come back to verse 19 in a minute. Verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. How many of y'all heard this verse from an evangelist at some point in your life? With all due respect, I mean, seriously. Or, or a traveling evangelist, because this is very famous. They would say, they'd stand up to you and they'd say, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. And they might even do this. And if you want him, let him and come in. Nails on a chalkboard, don't say that, don't do that. Well intended, but that's not what it means. How do you respond to Christ? Well, I want to talk to you about what this knocking is. And there is some evangelistic stuff in there. It's not really what it's all about. There has been a lot of different interpretations. I want to tell you what it's historically meant. You can disagree with these. We can talk about them. But there's at least three things here. So number two, subpoints ABC. Here we go. Door knocking number one. He's talking about a corporate congregation. He's talking about a corporate congregation. The message is not just to an individual or unsaved people. It is to a what? It's to a church, right? Church at Lady Sia. The message is coming to a church. He's outside their preaching. He's not at the center of their sermons. He's outside their ministries, their evangelism. He's outside their spiritual life. So he is, in a sense, knocking on their door. He's disgusted with them. He's ready to spew them out. But yet there he is, our Savior, knocking at the door, ready to receive the church back in. This is first meant for this church to know. You're way over here, but you can come back to me and I will bring you back in. Aren't you grateful for the grace of our God, guys? Second thing he says here, the door knocking could mean, this is meant for you and I as individual believers. As individual believers. He's not knocking on the church as a whole, but the church is made up of individual believers. I mean, note that word, note the singular. If anyone, if anyone, verse 20, your Bible may say it differently, if anyone hears my voice, He's talking to the church, but he's also talking to individual people. And in doing so, he says to them, I can transform you. How will he transform you? Well, he tells you, if you hear my voice, I will come in and dine with you. I will come in and change your view of me. I will come in and commune with you. The encounter leads to a falling out of love uh, with oneself and a love that comes only from Christ. Jesus comes to sup and causes our hearts to burn with awe. 
Do you remember after the resurrection in Luke 24, there were uh, a couple guys walking on the road to Emmaus? Do you remember the story? Don't preach us a lot on Easter. Perhaps, Nelson, perhaps we should plan this for Easter next year. He's taking notes back there, maybe. Or maybe not. Yes, right, Nelson? But do you remember they were walking on the road? And as they were walking along, they were talking about the, the events of the day and how Jesus had died. And then some guy, Jesus, by the way, walks up to them. And they just, he talks to them about all these things. And eventually they go to break bread and they can tell it's Jesus. And, and after he leaves them, the resurrected Jesus, he says their hearts burned because of everything they said. And he told them from the prophets all the way through the kings about himself. And that's what it is. If you are outside of Christ, the remedy for your lukewarmness is that you just simply bask at Jesus' feet. When is the last time you just spent some time with God in his word, quietly, without interruption? Jesus said in John 4, 34, my meat is to do the will of my Father in heaven and to finish his work. Jesus stands at the proverbial door and knocks for you to be brought back into fellowship with him. We're not talking salvation here, church. We're talking about relationship. He's calling you to repent and rekindle your zeal for him. He's inviting you to have genuine joy and profound communion. He's inviting you to a spiritual experience that far surpasses anything you can know. He stands at the door and knocks. So this knocking is for a church. It's for believers. But number three, and I think the context fits this, and this is where a lot of evangelists get it from, it's also for nominal members of the church. Nominal, cultural, carnal False convert Christians, notice the quotes, air quotes, that think they're in Christ but aren't. The point is, is that Christ extends to them an invitation to truly come to Jesus. It's very possible that members of this church were following it because it was becoming a popular thing to do within the city they were in. And every person who hears the gospel receives the invitation to come to Christ. You are here today and you do not know Jesus. Like if you really died today and God asks you, why should I let you into heaven? And you have no solid answer other than you're a good person, you try hard, you're sincere, you went to church here or there. You ought to fear for your soul, my friend. The greatest sin in hell is the rejection of the Savior who knocks at the door of your heart here on this earth. One of those old dead guys, Thomas Brooks, said it this way. He said, the pagan who never heard shall be thrust onto the surface of hell. But the ungodly who have heard the gospel and rejected the gospel shall be thrust into the very heart of hell. Do you understand that difference? It's one thing to grow up knowing the truth and not responding to the truth. It's another thing that you were around it so much that you knew it and you did not make a decision about it and you did not want to make a decision about it, there seems to be a greater judgment for those who have more truth and yet reject it. Go see the book of Hebrews, January 2022 to April 2023. So how do we bring a church or an individual back to Christ? I did not put these on the blanks, but Amy, if you just want to bullet those out there for these things, we can do two at a time. He tells you how. Look at the end of verse 21. Not only is he knocking, but he tells you the one who conquers. Who's the one who conquers? It's the one who remembers why Jesus left. It's the one who takes his advice. And what does Jesus say about him, verse 21? He says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. It is the one that knows why he left. If you are walking away, if your faith is lukewarm, you need to know, you need to ask the honest question, why am I in this place? What have I done? What has this church done to get away from the very things of God that are taking us away from him? Some of you may need to ask the question of 2 Corinthians 13, 5. And many of you know this verse well. Brother Dave, you quote this a lot, and I hear it a lot. It's always in my head too, that we are called to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are Christ. How do you examine yourself? Take this book. Read through it. By God's grace, can you say at the end of the day, you know what's expected of you as a Christian? And have you come to know Jesus Christ? You want it really practical? My testimony is, I've shared this before, First John, Eric Martin, who now pastors at, um, uh, if you know where Paradise, Missouri is, it's not quite Paradise, but it's on Smithville. You all know where Paradise is? It's got a good ice cream shop, all right? Go there for the ice cream alone. 
He, pa- he, uh, he pastors Paradise Baptist Church, was my youth pastor growing up many years ago. My mom was on staff at First Baptist Church, Plattsburgh. She still is. Uh, I've said it before, I love her dearly. She's never going to retire. She's a preschool teacher at heart. Linda, you understand this. It's, it's hard to give it up, isn't it? It's hard to do. She's been there almost 40 years now. But I was living like a hellion. I'd walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, magically, incantationally, said the right words, and Jesus was in my heart. But I was, man, I was living like a hellion. Even at 10 years old, 11 years old. And I had a youth pastor, and I turned a teenager, looked me square in the eyes. Uh, a staff pastor's son, a, sta- a staff member's son, looked at me and said, Darren, you don't know Christ. Who are you? And I, got, I said some words that were make a sailor blush to him. And I remember that. I'm not exaggerating this. My mom doesn't know the story, so you're not supposed to tell her this part, right? <laughs> and it's true. But he said, go read the book of 1 John. And it's terrible Bible study now. I would never encourage you to do this. But every time you see the word you, put your first name in there. Oh, I was so mad at Eric Martin. Oh, I could have socked him so hard if I could have beat him up. He's a strong guy, too. Went home that night or over that weekend. I don't remember the exact time frame. But I put my name in there, and it is like God melted me like butter in a microwave. My heart changed. If you're here today and you don't know why Jesus left, perhaps you never knew Jesus to begin with, and you've been playing church. But you need to be able and willing. The end of that story is he became one of my mentors. Brother Willie and I served with him in New Orleans years ago. He's been a faithful pastor for years. But because someone had the gall to tell me, I'm not sure you're really a Christian, I'm here standing before you by God's grace. You need to know why he left. But if you, secondly, you need to know this. He says it here. If you go back to verse 19, he says, those whom I love, I will reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. If you're a Christian, the greatest sign you're a Christian is God has not stopped convicting your heart of the sin that you have. If you have conviction in your heart that you're not living the way God wants you to, praise God for that. There's a little... You hear those sounds, and they haven't gone away. And he tells them, repent, turn back to me, and I will grant you to sit with me on my throne. Amy, if you want to put up number three. And he closes with this. He says, plead upon Christ. He says, I will grant to you to sit with me. In other words, plead Christ that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that salvation is forever and ever and ever. How do you conquer? You conquer because Christ is with you. And you conquer because he is the remedy by which you can be saved and by which you can fight lukewarmness. Christian, if you feel blah in your spiritual life right now, it's okay to an extent. To the extent that you recognize that you need to get back with him. I don't know where you are, each of you, right now. But I need you to know that if God will grant you to sit with him and you, as he has conquered, so you will conquer. That nothing that happens in this life can ever be done unless you plead the name of Jesus Christ. And you say, Darren, I talk to God all the time. It's like my prayers hit the wall. But if you, have you called out his name? Have you prayed, Lord, soften this cold stone heart, this winter-based heart, this Narnia kind of heart that's in there, the winter that never goes away, would you melt it once again? You're never too old for that. You're never too young for that. You're never too strong for that. If you hear him calling, respond to that. Plead with Christ. As we close today, I asked Pastor Nelson, Pastor Brian, to write a little thing. I have not finished it yet. It's been a busy last two or three days. But I want to read you some words that our pastor, and this will take us to our pastoral prayer before we transition to the last song. I asked our guys to kind of give an overview of the strengths, kind of do a Revelation 2 and 3 on Tower View, spiritually speaking. Nelson, if I may quote you, he's not denying me. I have the microphone, but he has, he has the mute, so he's letting me go. So here we go. Pastor Nelson, these are your words, not mine. The seven churches grid, here's the Tower View version from one pastor of ours' eyes, and I, I very much agree with him on all these. The strengths of our church is we reject evil, we love We have strong faith, works, and we accept the lowly. The challenge or the failure is that we fear to go out, to go and make disciples. But the promise is if we step out in faith, God is faithful to bless our efforts. 
Nelson, is that a fair word? He, he's nodding and not muting me, so that's, again, a good sign, right? Guys, we love you, but will we pray also that our church is not a lukewarm church, that as our fellowship grows, so our spiritual fervor grows for Christ. Will you pray with me? And we will close to our last song, and I just want to pray for us over these seven churches and pray for us as we consider entering the point of no return in the next few weeks. All these churches, a word from Christ about what it was that God wanted for them. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us today to have a spiritual fervor for you? Not just a fervor without um, a governor. The governor is your word and your spirit, Lord, but a fervor that desires you above all things and wants us to live for you. If there's any in this room who are, who are, who are there, Lord, would you just fan that flame and guard them from the very things that this church at Laodicea struggled with? Father, would you help us not to be like Ephesus, the listless, loveless church? Would you help us here at Tower View to love well? Father, would you help us to be like Smyrna, that persecuted 1040 window church, to be faithful and vibrant even though we're fearful? Would you help us to fight against the ungrounded, youth-infused compromise with the world of Pergamum? Help us to discern. Father, would you help us to not be like Thyatira, who was so warm-hearted and so loving and so tolerant that they had no backbone about the beliefs and facts that your Savior even told, or our Savior even told them? Would you help us think? Father, would you help us not to be so Sardis-like that we are so flashy and successful but ultimately shallow? We're, we're, we're an, inch, or, or, or an inch thick and or, or, or a mile wide and an inch deep, or however you want to say that, Lord. Help us to wake up. Lord, would you give us the spirit of Philadelphia, that small storefront church who didn't have a lot of strength, but they were strong even though they were struggling. Would you help us to press on? And Father, would you help us to be not like the ritzy, influential, very affluent church at Laodicea, who was spiritually poor and materially rich. The church was filled with affluence and apathy. Would you help us to be earnest to fight lukewarmness? Father, we do all this to your glory. And if there's any among us that have not come to Christ, may this be the day. We pray all these things to your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.